the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Hello and welcome to the show doing the most with regards to reporting news and the most current events around science, tech and innovation. I'm your host Bridget LeBerry and we have a very interesting topic this evening and I'm sure it will excite you as much as it has excited me. It's been challenging because there's a a lot to go through but tonight we unpack a really interesting uh, topic as I've mentioned on turning Wi-Fi signals into electricity. And in a report published recently by Moody's Moody's, uh, investors, South Africa's electricity grid still suffers tremendous uh, pressure to perform and give power to numerous households and to businesses. And the reserve margin is expected to remain tight until at least the mid 20, uh, you know, 20, uh, 2020, and Moody expects South Africa to still remain dependent on 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 uh, ESCOM for power supply. So today, as I've uh, as I've mentioned, we will be discussing a very innovative and alternative way of generating electricity, which is Wi-Fi signals being turned into energy. And as you know, electromagnetic waves are all around us and they come in various forms from um, gamma rays, from radio waves, microwaves, infrared, which uh, infrared, pardon me, which is uh, visible uh, light, x-rays and all of that. And we've seen how these can be exploited to generate electricity when we talk about solar energy, which draws energy from the sun. And now you can imagine if we're going to explore this topic of using Wi-Fi signals as as another form of providing energy. And I feel it's um, anything is possible, really. I mean, if you think about it, who would have thought we'd be talking about um, a, a topic such as this one? And, and uh, scientists believe that this could add numerous benefits to the field and the world in general, not to mention uh, South Africa. And we know that there are people who have ventured into this kind of technology. And um, I know of a young businessman who's uh, gone into doing this. He actually created a bag. Uh, this bag actually converts the um, the Wi-Fi signals to charge all elect- uh, electronic uh, devices from his laptop to his phone to his MP3 player or maybe uh, if we say his iPod. Uh, when it is inside the bag, he knows for sure that um, it is being charged. But uh, for more on this, we will talk to, um, actually we've spoken to a professor from uh, the Witzwatersrand uh, University, Professor Mervyn Naidu, and he explores with us and tells us how this can be made possible and how and and why actually it took so long because this technology is not really new i mean it's been around for a couple of of years and they've been talking about it and then they've been experimenting but um this young man he went a step further into you know actually looking into um exploiting using Wi-Fi signals to actually charge. But we do know that Wi-Fi signals are not strong enough, like the current electric um, current that we have 
that can actually produce the kind of or the amount of electricity that we uh, actually need. But later on in Unscience, we... Um, look at uh, a study from the University of Bern that has discovered how humans can actually unconsciously retrieve vocabulary from an entirely new language during particular phases of slow wave sleep. But as always, we kick it off with the science news. This week's Science Headline. Good evening. Uh, so... As per usual, I have uh, my co-host here with me, Masibulele Lunika. So what do we have in the news tonight? In your newsmaking headlines, Harvard scientist claims to reverse aging. Uh, scientists find plastic chemicals in high Arctic birds and propose artificial leaf design could save the environment. This is Masibulele Lunika here with the Science Inside News. David Sinclair, a renowned Harvard University geneticist, recently made a startling assertion that scientific data shows that he has knocked more than two decades of his biological age of 49 years. What's his secret? He says his daily regime includes ingesting a molecule from his own research, which was found to improve the health and lengthen the lifespan of mice. Sinclair now boasts online that he has the lung capacity, cholesterol and blood pressure of a young adult at the heart rate of an athlete. Despite the, his enthusiasm, uh, published scientific research has not yet demonstrated that the molecule works in humans as it does in mice. Sinclair, however, has a considerable financial stake in his claims uh, proven correct and has lent his uh, scientific pow- prowess to commercializing possible life extension products such as molecules known as NAD boosters. NAD stands for uh, nicotamide. Uh, adenine dinucleotide, a key compound in all living creatures. His financial interests include uh, being listed as an investor on the patent license to Elysium Health, a supplement company that sells uh, an NAD booster in pills for $60 a bottle. He's also an investor in Inside Tracker, the company that he says measured his age. According to NBC, discerning hype from reality in the longevity field has become tougher than ever as reputable scientists such as Sinclair, preeminent institutions like Harvard, align themselves with promising but unproven interventions and at times promote and profit from them. Fueling the excitement, investors pour billions of dollars into the field even as many of the products already even though as many of the products is already on the market face fewer regulations and therefore a lower threshold of proof and researchers have proposed a design solution that could bring artificial leaves out of the lab and into the environment their improved leaf which could Uh, use carbon dioxide which is a potent greenhouse gas from the air would be at least 10 times more efficient than natural leaves at converting carbon dioxide to fuel. These artificial leaves mimic photosynthesis a process whereby plants use water energy from the sun and carbon dioxide to produce food for the plant but even state-of-the-art artificial leaves which hold the promise in reducing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere only work in the laboratory because they use pure pressurized carbon dioxide from the tanks however 
Researchers from the University of Illinois in Chicago have proposed a solution that could bring artificial leaves out of the lab and into our environment. The improved leaf would be at least 10 times more efficient than natural leaves at converting carbon dioxide to fuel. And their findings are reported in the journal ACS, Sustainable Chemistry and Engineering. And a pro- assistant professor of chemical engineering at the UIC College Engineering and corresponding author, Minesh Singhon, said in order to implement this successfully in the real world, these devices need to be able to draw carbon di- dioxide from much more dilute sources such as air and flue gas. Uh, which is the gas given off by coal-burning power plants. But unhooking the pressurized carbon dioxide supply would mean that they must have a way to collect and concentrate carbon dioxide from the air to drive their artificial photosynthetic reactions. Singh and his colleagues Aditya Prajapati, a graduate student in his lab, proposed solving this problem by encapsulating a traditional artificial leaf inside a transparent capsule made of semi-permeable membrane of quaternary ammonium resin and it was filled with water. And what this membrane actually does is it allows water from the inside to evaporate out when it is warmed up by sunlight. As the water passes through this membrane, it selectively pulls in carbon dioxide from the air. The artificial photosynthetic unit inside the capsule is made up of a light absorber coated with catalysts that convert the carbon dioxide to carbon monoxide, which can be siphoned off and used as a basis for the creation of various synthetic fuels. Oxygen also is produced and can either be collected or released into the surrounding environment. And according to their calculations, 360 leaves, each which are about 1.7 meters long and um, 0.2 meters wide, could produce close to half a ton of carbon dioxide per day. And that could be used as a basic basis for uh, synthetic fuels. 360 of these artificial leaves covering a 500 meter square area will be able to reduce carbon dioxide levels by 10% in surrounding air within 100 meters of the array in just one day. Scientists have warned about the impact of plastic pollution in the most pristine corners of the world after discovering chemical additives in birds, bird eggs in the, in the high Arctic. Eggs laid by northern fulmers on Prince Leopold Island in the Canadian Arctic tested positive for hormone-disrupting uh, phthalates, a family of chemicals that are added to plastics to keep them flexible. It is the first time that additives have been found in Arctic birds' eggs. The contaminants are those are thought rather to have leached from plastic debris that the birds ingested while hunting for fish, squid and shrimp in the Lancaster Sound uh, at the entrance of the Northwest Passage. The birds spent most of their lives feeding at sea, returning to their nest only to breed. Northern farmers have uh, an oily fluid in their stomachs, which they projectile vomit at uh, invaders 
that threaten their their nests their nests rather scientists believe that the pellets uh, the pellets uh, found their way into the fluid and found uh, the passage into the bloodstream uh, and the eggs that uh, females were producing. Uh, Jennifer Provencher uh, at the Canadian Wildlife Service said it was worrying to find the additives in the eggs of birds in such a uh, uh, pristine environments. Uh, Provencher's test, uh, tests revealed that mothers passed on the cocktail of contaminants to their unborn chick chicks. Uh, she analyzed the yolk and um, albumin, albumin of, five, of five northern farmer eggs collected on Prince Leopold Island and found that one tested positive for phthalates. We know that the cause of for concern that phthalates disrupt the endocrine, endocrine system and this may cause birth defects, fertility issues, and a number of metabolic diseases. Scientists now want to look for plastic uh, contaminants in the eggs of other bird populations that ingest more plastic debris. Recapping are your top stories this hour. David uh, Sinclair, a renowned Harvard scientist, uh, university geneticist, rather recently made a startling assertion that scientific data shows that he has knocked more than two decades off, off his biological age of 49 years old. Scientists have warned about the impact of plastic pollution rather in the most uh, pristine corners of the world after discovered, discovering chemicals additives in bird eggs uh, in the high Arctic. And, well, Masibulele, um, I know we generally go through our stories, but um, it seems like, you know, time is not on our side and we have to get into our interesting story for the week, which uh, you have covered and um, we have a, a package uh, on your side. Yes. Let's get into it. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back to the Science Inside. Uh, and if you were with us earlier on, you might have heard that we are talking about a new or um, a really interesting research study that has been looking into uh, turning Wi-Fi signals into actual power uh, so to follow on the this conversation and if you want to tweet or you want to ask some questions obviously our social media handles on facebook it's vow fm and you can also tweet us at vow fm hashtag science inside the podcast is up on itunes and the vids.journalism.co.za slash um uh, science and our whatsapp line is Oh eight four oh seven eight four nine one two. And as I have mentioned, Masibulele Lunika did a story on um, how Wi-Fi signals uh, were turned into energy, and we get into that package. MIT scientists invent Wi-Fi to electricity converting device. Imagine a world where you no longer need to connect your electronic devices directly into a power source or use batteries in order to charge them. Instead, the electronics pick up radio frequencies in the atmosphere and convert them into electricity that powers them. This is exactly what a device that has been invented by scientists and researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology enables or does. 
The researchers have described this as the first fully flexible device that is able to convert energy from Wi-Fi signals into electricity that could power electronics. The device works by converting alternating current into direct current using a flexible radio frequency antenna that captures electromagnetic waves, including those carrying Wi-Fi, as AC wavefronts. In science, devices that convert AC electromagnetic waves into DC electricity are known as rectennas. MIT says the device, which is made from flexible, inexpensive materials, could power large area electronics, wearables, medical devices, and more. According to the research, the antenna is connected to a novel device that is made out of a two-dimensional semiconductor just a few atoms thick. The AC signal travels into the semiconductor, which converts it into a DC voltage that could be used to power electronic circuits or recharge batteries. For more on this story and this technology, we spoke to Professor Mervyn Naidu from the School of Physics at the University of the Witwatersrand, who said this is highly possible given that we already harness energy and electromagnetic waves from the sun to generate electricity. So you can use the energy of the sun to generate electricity. Mm-hmm. So why not use electromagnetic energy from any other source? Okay. And there's so much of it nowadays because mm-hmm. everybody's using their mobile phones, everybody's using uh, these antennas that transmit radio waves all the time for communication with mobile phones. Mm-hmm. So when a person transmits a radio wave or to broadcast the voice of Vitz, yeah, you're broadcasting an electric magnetic wave that travels through space and if you have a receiver it receives it in a special way it converts that signal into a sound form and they speak about converting sort of uh, an ac an ac exactly uh, all waves all waves all waves Mm. when they think of a wave it's got okay an alternating form it's just the signal the way the signal arrives yes okay so it's propagated in that way yeah all right, so yeah. it's that's the way waves travel. Busy. It's just a matter of how you harvest it. It's a question of harvesting the energy. Yeah. It's a question of, okay, so it's a, there's all of these ambient radio waves in the environment, all around us, all of the time. And just why we haven't harvested this uh, excess, this excesses that are there because there are radio waves all of the time, it's possible the signal is not that strong all of the time. Mm-hmm. It depends on... Uh, you know, what what the strength of the signal is and how well the material you have that can absorb the signal can convert it into a, mm-hmm. a, a some kind of power output power which can be used uh, to drive whatever circuitry. In terms of concerns regarding intense radio frequency exposure, which we know can be harmful to the body if absorbed in large quantities, Professor Naidu said this is not to worry about as the effects of this could have already been seen since the energy being harnessed is already out there and around us. Our radio waves have been around for such a long time. We've been communicating with them forever. And so the density of transmitters have increased over time. But invariably, if, if this was dangerous, we would have seen the effect by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's exponential in terms of the number of users that you have of people using cell phones uh, or mm-hmm. transmitters that have been put up to transport information. But this whole time it's been regulated. And yeah, been... but it's regulated in the sense that, of course, you can't have a powerful transmitter that can fry things. Yes. So that's not the way it is. Trans- uh, it's transmitted over 
a large sphere, as it were, and it stresses like a sphere. So the energy density drops dramatically as you move further and further away from the transmitter. It actually drops over as one of R squared almost, I think, in most cases. Yeah. So if you're close to the source of the transmitter, the energy density is pretty high. But that is why transmitters are put up at high places far away from where people can possibly stand next to it, for that matter. The reason why you feel warm in the sun is because you feel the infrared radiation from the sun, mm. which is electromagnetic waves. Yes. So when your body absorbs radio waves, you don't sense it like a heat. You mm -hmm. sense it, you don't even sense it at all. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, mm. it's a thing. It's not a, if, if it was that harmful, it was, it's such long wavelengths. That's mm. the whole thing about radio frequencies. They're very long wavelength radiation, electromagnetic waves, mm. which means they don't carry a high energy to start with. Mm -hmm. But the long wavelengths, what we mean by that is that uh, if they're absorbed into the body, the energy density is so small that they can't really cause uh, a grievous damage to the cells of the body. According to the professor, this brings new and exciting possibilities in science, although the amount of energy drawn at the moment can only power small-scale electronic devices rather than entire households. You need lots of scary materials to be able to do this, okay? The power efficiency which changes the signal it receives into an electrical signal, you know, yeah. not that efficient at the present time. But so you 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 understand it's it's it doesn't take all of the energy and convert it into, into electricity. electricity for that matter. So there's an efficiency question that comes in, and I don't know if they at the point where the efficiencies of a nature where they can say, oh, it'll actually become a power bank mm -hmm. of the future. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's the case. We're still struggling to get solar power up to that level where we can harvest solar power in a way that it's so efficient that we don't have to derive our energy from fossil fuels. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it can't get there, but sure, let's see what happens. You know, time will tell. It's be improved the technologies uh, and that kind of thing. So I, I can see um, things like that taking place, uh, but whether or not it will completely supply our energy needs because we are such an energy-hungry yeah, society. This scientific innovation has been on the lips of a number of scientists at this point, and it has only now become a reality. We are still waiting for it to be presented commercially, and as we've heard from Professor Naidu, we were just waiting for the right enough material and the right enough technology to be able to harness it, and hopefully we have finally found it. The research, published by Nature.com last month, is titled two-dimensional materials, enabled flexible rectenna for Wi-Fi band wireless energy harvesting, and was worked on by 15 co-authors from MIT, the Technical University of Madrid, the Army Research Laboratory, Charles III University of Madrid, Boston University, and the University of Southern California. According to MIT, the team is now planning to build more complex systems and improve efficiency. It's Masibule Leluniga here with the Science Inside News. You're listening to the Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. I hope that was um, 
interesting enough for you. But as per usual, now we get into the nerdy part of the show. The part of the show that sort of relaxes us, that is, um, you know, where we get adventurous and nerdy. And we look at the stranger side and the interesting side of research, really. And we find out what are the other wonderful and weird things that scientists spend a lot of their money and time and effort on. And today's Unscience was produced by myself and the music is from Orange Sounds and my Unscience story comes from Science Daily. Let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Uh, doesn't that remind you of your childhood, Masubulele? <laughs> <laughs> no, isn't that doesn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what if I were to to tell you that you could learn an entirely new language? Which one would it be if if you could choose if I one? Could. Ah, tough question. I'd say either Spanish or French. <laughs> Uh, well, <laughs> the usual the usual response yeah. from a lot of people. <laughs> hmm. yeah. yeah, but what if I told you that scientists from the University of Bern have proven that during particular phases of, uh, of slow wave sleep, humans can actually unconsciously retrieve vocabulary from an entirely new language upon waking up. Wow, that sounds so cool. Uh, like something I could definitely make use of. Uh, but how is that even possible, Bridget? Well, so far, sleep research has only focused on consolidating memories which had been formed prior to consciousness. But apparently, learning during sleep has never been explored because sleep has always been considered as an unproductive unproductive exercise, rather, well, at least for the body, but clearly not for the mind. Researchers have found that during the reviewing of replays of a sleeping brain, they found that replay during sleep actually strengthens the very delicate memory traces by embedding the newly gathered information in previously stored knowledge tanks of the brain. Wow. So are you saying that his play sort of encourages the brain to remember the things we had said, uh, heard, learnt, bringing it back to the fore again so that it seems like a not-so-distant memory? Precisely the point. And that is why the brain is such a phenomenal and uh, remarkable network. Wow, so how do they go about carrying out this research? Well, Katharina Henke, Mark Zust and Simon Rusch of the Institute of Psychology and the in- Interfaculty Research Corporation of the Swiss University who are studying the decoding of sleep went a step further. They wanted to find out if newly learned information during sleep could be remembered upon waking up by carrying out an experiment on participants. And they found out that these participants could reactivate the associations made with sleep played foreign words to access parts of their brain uh, for meaning of those words. And the part of the brain structure, which is essential for wake associative learning called the hippocampus, supported the retrieval of sleep formed associations. Truly remarkable. This could even perhaps explain theories like uh, such as deja vu for instance, don't you think? I'm sure they wouldn't rule that out completely because Katerina discovered that during two crucial phases of sleep, during the up state, which is the active stage of the brain, and the down stage, 
state uh, during inactivity between these two phases the brain alternates in between every half a second and that when words of an an artificial language was played three or four times during the upstate the person was able to associate the german translated words and artificial language played words upon waking up whether the sleep played words were dominated by something large or small and zeus who is the co-author to this paper says the interesting part in all of this is that Brain structures usually help with formation of new vocabulary learning during during the uh, conscious state. Wow. Well, I guess this could dramatically change the lives of those who might have suffered during a traumatic experience, uh, which may have caused them uh, memory loss. Absolutely. Yeah. And this disproves the preconceived truths about sleep. Uh, when you're in a sleep state, you are uh, t- detached from the physical environment. I mean, just like you mentioned, perhaps one's memory can be jogged up uh, to remember basic information about themselves. And who knows, we might even be able to teach children in their sleep as well. And in fact, Katarina says the new research topic for upcoming years will be how far and what the consequences of deep sleep can be utilized for the acquisition of new information. And this research study was a joint effort between the University of Bern and Roland Waste, who is affiliated with the Support Center for Advanced Neuroimaging Scan at the, at the Institute. So isn't that um, amazing? That is just amazing. It is is just incredible. I just really love um, sciences around the brain and how it operates and you know Mm. what the brain can actually do. And what do they say about the brain? We only use about 90%? About 30%. 30%. Yeah, but yeah, about 30%. Actually less than that. No, it's It's 10%. Actually 10. Yes. You should get the, yeah. Use 10% and the 90% is actually actually unexplored. Mm-hmm. And and I I heard just one percent extra could could achieve incredible things. Um, I I saw a movie once that was just so incredible. I forgot the name. It's a pity, but it's incredible how how much the brain is 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 powerful and what um, capacities it can reach yeah. if we just tapped on those untapped um, percentages. That's just incredible. Yeah, truly beautiful. Truly, truly beautiful. Yeah. Well, that was unusual, unlikely, unscience. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Welcome back, and this is the Science Inside, and I'm your host, Bridget Lepere. And if you just joined us earlier on we spoke about how wi-fi signals can be turned into energy but we also learned that i mean these signals are not really strong enough to actually be converted to actually power up an entire house but um we have started i mean with small things like you know small devices like our cell phones our laptops and other things and I'm sure surely our scientists will figure a way of generating enough power from these Wi-Fi signals to produce um, the power that we need to power up our households but um, we continue with this topic and we are going to talk about a slightly different um, science within the science of uh, Wi-Fi and um, 
we are going to be talking about um, how the CSIR has developed a range of wet and sonar transducers and arrays for specialized underwater applications. The team has established a small volume manufacturing capability that ensures that full configuration management is performed and manufacturing procedures can be tested and finalized prior to the technology transfer. Now, you may be wondering what this is all about, but the the application of this technology can actually be used to support the fleet of operations of naval and commercial industries. Their shipping vessels can benefit from three-dimensional imaging with detailed information on features encountered underwater. Now, the electroacoustic underwater test facility at the CSIR is such a facility and it is tasked with testing of underwater sonar transmitters, receivers and arrays in respect of their acoustic sensitivity and acoustic beam patterns and electrical properties. And we learn how these technologies and how underwater uh, communication has improved over the years and what kind of improvements the team has done to the current systems and how we can learn from their experience and from this research that they have uh, carried out. And earlier on, I spoke to uh, such a person who is a telecommunications engineer at the CSIR, Dr. Uh, Kahesh Denise. He specializes in underwater communications at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research. And in the following clip, he takes us through what the aim of improving the current underwater communication systems is. Our real aim is right now in the underwater world, people are getting voice across. But voice doesn't require a lot of data, or it doesn't require a very large bandwidth to actually get a voice across an environment. So what we're actually looking at is, let's start with picture, and if we get picture right, let's move to video next. So the actual application for this is currently right now with the underwater vehicles, they're actually attached to the ship by a bit of an umbilical cord. So basically, like you could have your camera, your camera would take an image, and that image would be sent via this umbilical cord to a ship. Now you can imagine, you think of it as a wired phone. A wired phone, you, you lack that maneuverability. So that's the first way of actually communicating video currently. The second way is they send like a underwater vehicle. It goes and it takes pictures of the whole environment. It then comes back and docks with the mothership. Then only does it actually give that information across. So those are the two traditional approaches that are currently being used in the underwater environment. But would it not be nice to actually have an underwater vehicle that's actually doing its thing and let's go wirelessly sending that picture back to the mothership so that the vehicle can maneuver wherever it needs to maneuver and it can send things in, in a real-time nature back to the mothership. So that's the application of this sort of work. Here he tells us about the current challenges that face underwater communications and how this transducer will improve the amount of data that is being transferred per second, per minute. The thing about underwater communication is there's this thing that's called a transducer. A transducer is something you put an electrical signal out and outputs a sound wave. Now, the problem with underwater communication has been that those transducers have actually been very low bandwidth. If you have a lot of bandwidth, it means you can actually put out a lot more information. So now the problem that has been holding the underwater communication world back is they've actually had very low bandwidth, that means low throughput transducers, which they haven't been able to work with. So what we've done at CSR is we've developed a very unique high bandwidth transducer, and it's the first of its kind in the world. 
So right now, that's the competitive advantage we actually have over everyone else. But now, problems with traditional uh, terrestrial communication that has been used uh, is that it offers limited uh, mobility as he has uh, alluded to earlier on and due to these wires that uh, transmit the sound from the antennas to the device and to the communication network the best way to think of it is back in the old days when we still had the of the telephone, you understand? You needed to be close to your telephone to communicate with somebody. Nowadays, with cell phones, you can be anywhere and you can still communicate with another person. So the underwater world right now is still in the so-called telephone phase. Just try to make the transition from the telephone phase to the wireless phase. So you may be wondering, how does this communication system really work deep down under uh, the ocean and under the water? And in the following, he just paints... uh, you know, a clear picture of how the system would work in simple terms. I'm going to give a very simple analogy, right? So we have these big swimming pools and we put in antennas, or what we call them as transducers. So we put in uh, into these big swimming pools an antenna on one end and we put an antenna on the other end. And we transmit from the one end to the other end. When I mean we transmit, in our case, we're sending pictures. So we take a picture. The picture we're currently using now is of a jellyfish, because we thought it was appropriate. And we transmit that picture from one end of the swimming pool to the other end. And we get the picture on the other end, and we're able to do all sorts of things, like actually calculate how many errors are in the picture. So that's just a simple explanation of how is this whole system working. Now, wireless uh, communications is also not without its own challenges because wireless communications can sometimes face high path loss due to increased density in the water. I mean, the sound waves, they need to pass through uh, so many things. I mean, in the water, there's rocks, there's uh, sometimes the waters are murky and sometimes it's affected by also the weather and so many other elements because the environment is so harsh. And there are other things, I mean, um, uh, uh, like dynamic channel condition or large antenna size. And here he explains. So basically, the, the higher the frequency of communication, the smaller the antenna size. So that's, that's just a rough relationship between the, between the two. That's why they try to communicate at a very high frequency, like cell phones and stuff. The reason they try to communicate at a very high frequency is you have a smaller antenna size. I mean, the lower the frequency, the bigger antenna you you kind of need. Like this radio, it operates at a so-called lower frequency. You need like a really big antenna. Like on your car, you need a car antenna to actually pick up this radio. Or if you're listening to it on your phone, you need, sometimes you need those old earphones and you plug your earphones into your phone. Those earphones actually act as an antenna. So uh, generally, the lower the frequency, the larger the antenna. And generally, the higher the frequency, the smaller the antenna. Now you would wonder what would happen once the vessel is deep in uh, in the in in the seas and away from the communication networks. Now, how does it pick up a signal? Does it use a satellite? Uh, what does it use to communicate back the sound if that um, proverbial umbilical cord is no longer there? In the following, he elaborates on this. We need jobs in the country. And I mean, these sort of things, in my opinion, will actually start creating jobs. And it will actually create more collaboration with with people abroad. Jobs will benefit the economy and the country going forward. I'm just very excited that we've been able to produce this large band transducers, first of its kind, and yeah, it can only lead to positive economic development. 
However, with all modern technologies, we need to be aware of environmental and health hazards that come with the kind of technology that we use. And we need to be aware that, I mean, even though there's 3G and 4G technology, these things, they they do they might even have some harmful effects on the environment and the people that um, are using these kind of technologies. And we hear more from Kahesh. We need jobs in the country. And I mean, these sort of things, in my opinion, will actually start creating jobs. And it will actually create more collaboration with, with people abroad. Jobs will benefit the economy and the country going forward. I'm just very excited that we've been able to produce this large band transducers first of its kind and yeah it can only lead to positive economic development i think this is um really an interesting um research that um the csir has undertaken because i mean with this kind of communications that happen they are able to you know pick up whatever is happening um below the waters they can actually communicate um if there are dangers um below the seas and they're able to you know give vital information that um defense forces like uh, the maritime actually need so um masibulele what has piqued your interest from um these stories that we've interesting interesting stories indeed i find it so amazing that um and in spite of all these problems that we currently face with power and electricity we we still have so much untapped avenues that we can explore in order to get more power. So to think of how much we have around us in the form of radio frequencies, electromagnetic waves and so on, and that we can actually just sit and while I'm sitting here, my phone is being charged on my computer or my other electronics. So that is just incredible that we can even uh, do such things. Uh, and we look at the safety parts of it. I read on my iPhone not long ago about... Um, um, uh, radio frequency radiation that could potentially be harmful uh, if emitted in, in large quantities. But of course, as, as, as Professor Naidu said earlier, um, these things are not that harmful uh, because if they had uh, been harmful, we would have seen the consequences by now. Um, so that's quite interesting to me. It's just a matter of the technology that hasn't been found, you know, the right enough tools and resources that haven't been there to actually harness these uh, this technology that's out there, this this power that's out there. So now, as we're moving towards this this future, this fourth industrial revolution, uh, and as you mentioned, we have four G and three G. Now they're exploring five G. Yes. Uh, these things should should be in existence already. It doesn't make sense why they haven't been. Yeah, but uh, during my interview with um, with Kahesh as well, he mentioned that. Um, just as a, a precautionary measure on his side, what he actually does is, because I, I asked him, I mean, um, have we tested these things? I mean, mm. we just take these technologies, we take them to the ocean, we put them out there. and um, But before we actually carry out these studies, do we actually know the the effects and you mm. know he said they don't really know uh what's mm. actually what's actually out there because yeah. he said he actually said to me if you ask any scientist um if these things have been measured and if they have been tested they haven't been tested on a large scale i mean mm. and they haven't been tested over a long period 
of time, right? Yes. So obviously we wouldn't have um, mm. the results that the show that this backup. is what they do. But he says as a precautionary measure, he doesn't prefer speaking on his cell phone for mm. an extended period of, of time because when you do speak on, on your phone, mm. um, there's uh, the infrared and all yeah. these um, mm. energies that come from your phone yes. that get transmitted into your body. And you mm. can imagine, I mean, for people who spend large amounts of time over the phone, yes. these uh, things this are... Um, effect. I think it's the, same, it's the same effect that, well, I guess we have when exposed to too much sunlight and we get um, uh, these ultraviolet rays that can cause cancer, skin cancer and things like that. So uh, there's a common saying that too much of anything isn't good. Sure. So I think, I think, yeah, we need to, to keep in mind that we can't be too, um, too extreme about it. Sure. But uh, yeah, it is definitely, in my opinion, an avenue to 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 explore. Um, and I mean, the regulative part of it uh, needs to be checked uh, also very closely because uh, if the law is not is not is not keeping a cap on on these things, we stand a chance to be exploited by scientists claiming unbacked up um, unbacked up. Uh, yeah, stuff. Claims. Research claims. Exactly. Yeah, and insinuations. All right, um, then we'll just take a break and then we'll come back with more after the break. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. I'm your host, Bridget LeBerry, and this is the Science Inside. And we have uncovered really interesting uh, things today. I mean, as we were speaking earlier on about um, um, turning... Wi-Fi signals. Wi-Fi signals into electricity. My God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, n- I never mm. thought we'd be speaking about... Yeah. Uh, th- I mean, it seems like Wi-Fi was just a thing that was just, you know, from yesterday. <laughs> from yesterday, exactly. Yeah. And I guess that's why it's so interesting in, 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 in a lot of people's ears uh, is that, of course, we speak about uh, solar energy and we speak about you know other radio frequencies, electromagnetic uh, uh, energy energies that are around there but Wi-Fi no I don't think anyone could have ever guessed that Wi-Fi could potentially be turned into power I was personally shocked and I find that I found that out uh, and even even earlier before that I was just in the office borrowing a charger from a colleague and then he said wouldn't it be cool if I could just send you power just like an sms type of thing i said actually yeah i mean that would be an interesting thing and i i, I saw this and i said goodness this is actually quite amazing sure wow and then again uh in cases where there's load shedding um it just it just sparked now is would wi-fi be be out there do you think it would work possibly possibly yeah yeah of course if you're running it on battery power for instance and then maybe um, you have your 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 um, what do you call it? A Wi-Fi router that is powered by battery power. You could use that that energy, I guess, to charge your phone. <laughs> yeah, but what would be the point, really? I mean, like <laughs> you're draining this one just to just to get power from the other one, and then like yeah, it yeah, doesn't really it doesn't make really. Uh, too much of sense. But yeah. maybe um, when you're in an emergency and you just need to just call someone fast. <laughs> it could work. Yeah, for just a few moments, but yeah, definitely not uh, not a solid power source. Yeah. Yeah. Uh but thank you so much for being with us on uh tonight's show. It's been mm-hmm. intriguing, it's been really interesting, it's been really informative and um 
I would just like to thank our guests who were featured on the show, including Mervyn Naidu, Kahesh Denise, and uh, obviously today uh, the team behind the scenes, Masibulele um, Lunika um, and Tech by Kutwano Serame, and podcasts, our podcast, you can get it on vits.journalism.co.za backslash science and on iTunes and uh, our social media uh, um, pages on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Val FM. The Science Inside is produced by the Vids Radio Academy and funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. And that was it from our nice news side. desk and the Science Inside for this show. We will catch up with you next time. Uh, well, actually, next week, Monday, next week same Monday. time, same place on Val FM. Have a good night, everyone. The Science Inside, Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. on VALFM 88.1. The Science Inside Podcast.